right, welcome to episode 21 of Rainbow Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Dupuy, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Co-hosting with me today is... Uma Ribeiro, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Um, today, we're joined by Matthew Moliette. Um, Matthew is running for HCPSS Board of Education District 1. Welcome, Matthew. Hello. Well, welcome. Uh, glad to be with you. I'm Matthew Moliette. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Matthew. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Um, along with my wife, my three kids and their grandma, uh, I live in the Dunlogan neighborhood of Ellicott City. Uh, my kids go to Northfield in Dunlogan Middle. Um, professionally, I work as a technical leader for Cisco. Um, we moved here to Ellicott City in uh, 2016 from Elkridge, where my daughter had attended school since kindergarten. And I really got involved with the schools about the time my middle son, my middle son was approaching pre-K. Uh, I was discouraged when I learned that the pre-K in our neighborhood school uh, was being discontinued because they needed the space to accommodate local overcrowding. And since then, I've been a community activist and a consumer of all things related to the school system. Cool. Um, were you able to get that pre-K back and up and running or was that still in the works? Uh, as far as I know, that school hasn't uh, shifted over and started picking back up the pre-K. Um, I moved out of Elkridge uh, shortly okay. after that and I used the county parks and rec uh, pre-K to get both him and my youngest son um, some pre-K school. Excellent. Um, now I know uh, some of your top priorities um, include uh, LGBTQ plus um, inclusivity and visibility in the school system. Um, why do you have that as one of your top priorities? Well, first off, it's a uh, area that the school system uh, currently um, has some issues <laughs> lacking. Um, during our last Board of Education race, a uh, one of the candidates managed to collect uh, endorsements for their candidacy despite their uh, had strong transphobic um, policy wishes, and they wanted to bring those views directly into the school system. Hmm. So protecting against a backslide is extremely important. Um, and it hits close uh, right to home. My second grade daughter at the time had, when we were in drop-off, was like, Dad, I, I know that people look at me expect me to want to kiss boys but I don't. So now she's a, a very confident and outspoken uh, and lesbian middle schooler now. <laughs> so protecting um, her access and her schooling is obviously important uh, just as a straight parent as well. Wow. That's really awesome. I mean, it, Props to you for being uh, open and accepting 
that your child felt comfortable enough to come out to you at age seven. <laughs> um, that's pretty awesome. Um, how's middle school going for her? Um, it generally goes very well. Um, unfortunately, she has been able to come home and share instances of uh, bigotry and ignorance from her classmates and other mm -hmm. kids at the school. Um, but she's always uh, said that she felt um, supported and protected mm -hmm. by the school itself. Well, that's that's positive for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues, how do you think the current Board of Education has supported students? As a board, um, the outcomes have been uh, fairly inclusive and supportive. Um, one of the big steps forward is they've uh, had created an office of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, to be able to give a, uh, a set of central office folks the ability to report directly to the superintendent and focus on um, addressing equity and inclusion uh, cases and issues and to be able to work on facilitating culture change as necessary. Um, but specifically when we break down to individual members, uh, the school system has recently settled a lawsuit for $600,000 uh, brought because of one of the board members, my opponent actually, uh, and a former board member had, had engaged in homophobic harassment of the administration staff. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm not, can you uh, share a little bit with us about that case? I believe I read a little bit about it in the Baltimore, was it the Baltimore Sun? I think might've covered it. Um, do you know any more about that case? Uh, the Baltimore Sun had um, covered it originally, um, I think early in the spring last year, uh, mm -hmm. as the suit was being brought. Um, it detailed that there were supporting documents from the Howard County Office of Human Rights uh, investigators. Mm -hmm. I have not personally been able to uh, substantiate that report. Um, but then early this year, again in the Baltimore Sun, they were reporting about the settlement of the lawsuit. And uh, yeah, the fact that it, it was it something that they could uh, uh, defend, suggest that, yes, that report that was cited in the first one uh, does exist and would have been a problem to try and bring out in court? Hmm. This just goes to show you that uh, you have to be careful what you say, um, that it can be um, very harmful and can cause a lot of uh, financial strain as well. So um, I think that was actually one of the things that I wanted to bring up was talking about how um, board candidates, it seems like, you know, like anybody could run for the board of education. Are we doing good enough background checks on people? Are we checking their social media before 
um, you know, they, they get far in the process. Um, mm-hmm. cause I know there was that, there was another candidate that would, that dropped out earlier on, um, that it came out that they had posted some very uncomfortable, I was very uncomfortable seeing some of the things that they had posted, um, to social media, uh, for the public eye. Um, you know, and I, what is the process for becoming a board candidate? Well, the process itself is you go into the board of elections, um, you fill out your, uh, uh, certificate of candidacy or application of candidacy. I don't recall the exact phrasing and you pay, I believe it was $25. Um, there's, uh, some financial disclosures and such to establish, um, like anti-corruption, uh, efforts and documentation, but that's it. After that, you're on the ballot and it goes to the public and the voters to provide uh, the the vetting and the analysis. I mean, isn't that just, to me, that is unsettling in the fact that you could have a record? I mean, yeah, from I mean, isn't in theory, couldn't you have a record to be, I mean, a, you know, yeah. like a criminal record and be running for the Board of Education technically? Yeah, and I and- yeah. Miss Dupuy, like from a student perspective, it's also unsettling for me because, you know, these schools are so diverse. And, you know, like as a brown female myself, you know, I I hope that, you know, board members would have more thorough background checks because, like you mentioned before, you know, some have um, have a record of saying hateful things. Mm hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. Is that is that am I wrong in thinking that that there could be some, you know, board members in theory that could get elected, that could kind of like squeak by, they have a history of hateful rhetoric and yet, or even criminal history or doing things not above the board and getting elected. Am I, am I correct? Or Yes. Yes, you're correct. That, that it is uh, possible. And I'm not sure that there is a uh, better method for that than our current one of about um, just leaving the discovery and relaying of that sort of um, information to opposition research or uh, media vetting and reporting because to, to provide like hard limits as to who can seek election or uh, be elected ends up putting a section of the government in place to gatekeep who the voters can choose. Um, and that that feels more dangerous. Um, ideally, the media and the voters and the election process would provide uh, the vetting, the visibility, and uh, bring the information out. I feel like it's so, like, takes so long to get to that point. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, 
Um, when you're just thinking about it, like, okay, you know, this person says they're going to run for the board of education and then, oh, hey, I, you know, check this out. Like, maybe I'm an opponent, right? Maybe I don't really, or maybe I don't agree with their views or what have you. And I'm trying to uh, find something and I put it out there. And even though it might be fact, maybe the other uh, opposition doesn't necessarily believe it because, oh, well, you're just bringing out to try to shame my person, uh, you know, to shame this candidate. Um, or, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it loses, you lose a little bit of traction once people are already in and working their way into getting elected. Um, I don't know. I'm just, just, I'm just thinking about it. I didn't have these questions ahead of time before we started talking and I'm just like, oh, wow, this is kind of, this is interesting. That is, that's very true. That does happen. Like as soon as you get um, the voters invested behind their candidate, then they do get into that, like, oh, any bad information coming in is a, just an attack on their character, not a revelation of their character. And so we can ignore, um, just remove it. Uh, and we see that, especially like once uh, in the partisan elections, where after the party has firmly committed to a nominee, then then it becomes really difficult for them to walk back or quiet down um, in their support when something bad like that uh, happens. Like we saw that nationally with like the Roy Moore election in Alabama or even the last presidential election when on election day, there was a pending lawsuit um, about the, the um, rape of a child outstanding against one of the candidates, and yet he was still able to be elected. Oh my God. He was active. Oh my God. And I guess, see, that to me is so disturbing. Like, what are we doing? Like, why isn't there, I mean, no offense, but if you have to have a background check and you know, be fingerprinted to work for the government to like file papers, paperwork. I mean, I think that in order to work with children, that should be like a minimum requirement or hold a public office. That should be a minimum requirement. You know what I mean? I mean, as a parent of a Girl Scout, a little Girl Scout, you know what I mean? In a place where there's other adults present, I have to have a background check even though I'm already a teacher and I've been fingerprinted, I have to have a background check every three years just to double check to make sure that I haven't broken any laws or done anything shady in order to be present in the same room with other like parents and their children. I just, that to me is like Wait, so astounding. You have to do that every three years? Yes. And, I have and to pay my own money to do that. Yeah. So I guess to me, I find it just crazy that, People like the other board member that you're mentioning that has, you know, dropped homophobic and transphobic slurs or, you know, the other person that had dropped out earlier in the race. Why do we have these type of people representing all people? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in office. (laughs) An interesting uh, fallout of the candidate that had uh, dropped out that you mentioned 
was shortly after he had dropped out, one of his donors, a, a fairly significant donor, had wrote an op-ed into, uh, I don't know, one of the papers, I think it was. But they were calling for her increased and thorough vetting of the candidates before they run, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And this was somebody that they weren't confronted with the uh, uh, the names on the ballot. It was somebody that had <laughs> presumably done their research and looked into who they were dealing with before they wrote a four-figure check to them. Mm-hmm. And then other people revealed who it was they donated to and there was significant uh, donor remorse after that. Oh, sure. Presumably that would be one of the people carrying out the most thorough vettings. Right. Well, and I think that, you know, no offense, but there people have full-time jobs and families and I don't have like a ton of free time to go like digging like really deeply into finding out like, okay, who said something, you know, bad, like, I mean, some people have 30 Facebook posts in a day or 30 social media posts in a day. I can't go looking through decades of, you know, that stuff. There's somebody out there that can, you know, just not me personally. I don't have the time to to put in that. Um, however, I think you can also tell a lot from, um, you know, what people say and how they act. And, uh, you know, I really appreciated that um, Carrie had put out the... Um, this, the report card for uh, board of education uh, candidates. So I hope a lot of people take a look at that before they uh, cast their votes. Yeah. I, I had really appreciated that, uh, um, that questionnaire, uh, both from the one filling it out. It, it was great to see the perspectives uh, that were built into uh, the different questions to, Think about the case of um, how different areas of the school um, may not be as inclusive as they could be or where we could be failing um, our students, but also to see uh, the grading that came out afterwards. I I was following the conversation about especially people wanting to uh, defend and um, obfuscate when their candidates had been graded as an F. One, uh, there was a nice full methodology uh, provided after the discussion that went on. Uh, my wife had pulled up their listed methodology and the answers and went through as a checklist on it and was able to fully replicate what the grades were that came out to be able to see and understand. Mm-hmm even based on the reasonings given. So it wasn't even just like, oh, here's our rating one to five and uh, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. But when you got into the questions, they uh, they deal with such a niche area of our culture and interactions where you know, people that relate to um the median in their community significantly um, tend not to think about the interactions of how others interface with the system. So it 
presents this large blind spot that would make it so you you have trouble vetting um, whether something is uh, anti, just obfuscating BS, or a, a solid understanding of the question and desire to do good. Uh, so by providing the grades, it let us have the people in the community, the uh, community allies of Rainbow Youth, <laughs> Carrie, um, mm -hmm. look at the answers and be able to provide uh, their deep lived experience with the topics and be able to pick out what um, is a problem or what isn't. So like when there's a question about uh, whether a teacher should be sharing information about their lifestyle or sexuality with the kids, some of the uh, F answers to that reference, well, no, they, they, their home life uh, isn't an issue for the classroom, so they shouldn't be sharing it. But those questions never even come up for a male teacher that makes a reference to their wife or touches on what their home life is. Exactly. It's only when it's a deviation from what the most of the audience uh, encounters or goes through that it even becomes uh, noticeable. So well, if you just completely ignore any time a straight heterosexual uh, cisgender person is discussing those aspects of their life, you end up not even hearing it. So it, it's only when it's, oh, that that's surprising or that's not what I usually encounter that it catches your attention. And then you hear it and you're like, if you're like, well, that shouldn't be shared with the kids. Well, you ignore it all of the rest of the time. All we want is for these staff members, these students, the ones that want to just be able to generally talk about what's going on with their two dads and etc. We just want them to be able to fit in and be part of the community, just like everybody else. Yeah, and oftentimes even like, uh, you know, white cis males, whether teachers or, you know, just in administration, oftentimes can also just get away with saying hateful things. And it's just seen as like normal, um, at least in my experience. And um, also in my experience, you know, I really resonated with what you were saying about how, you know, we're taught that we shouldn't bring, you know, home life into school or into the workplace. But oftentimes, you know, uh, you know, white heterosexual cis males will just, you know, I, I in my experience, I've had teachers um, like go on tangents about certain things that are not appropriate for the classroom. But since they are, you know, um, white heterosexual cis males, it's just seen as normal. Yeah, right. It, exactly. I think there's definitely um, a fine line between what do you share with students and what don't you share with students? Mm -hmm. And I think that if you can make the experience applicable to the classroom or to some real world, real life skills, then absolutely share it. Um, I mean, honestly, like the only stuff that I remember from being in school is the times that my teachers actually, you know, 
let loose, got a little comfortable and shared personal stories. Like that's how I relate to people is through personal yeah. stories. And I think that's how most kids relate to people, like through personal stories. Um, you know, obviously there are some things I just, I think sometimes people can get off on tangents and, and it gets a little personal and you probably shouldn't share those things with students, whether you're straight, bi, you know, uh, gay, whatever. But, um, I do think that there needs to be some sort of understanding that if you can share it and you're straight, then you should be able to share it if you're not. Um, that just goes for equity across the board. And that goes for students too. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, as a student, I also really like when teachers do share personal stories. Um, and most like the majority of teachers that I have had, you know, are, um, like there's no line ever crossed, but just in like one experience that I have had, you know, I feel like oftentimes, you know, um, I've also spoken to other students in other schools within the county who just feel like, you know, teachers who share personal stories that could have a positive impact um, face more consequences than those who share personal stories or who share hateful words. And, and they, they, they are not, they don't have any consequences. I don't know. If, yeah. If that makes sense. But um, mm -hmm. I think that like teachers should have a platform to be able to, you know, relate to students. And I really personally like that. And those are stories that stick with me as well. I just find it unfortunate, you know, that uh, like we were saying before, things that should be that should feel normal um, are often criticized. I think that, too, because we live in a culture of fear in general. Yeah. Um education is so much different now than it was from like when my like mom was teaching in the classroom. Um, you know, she would pick her students up on weekends and take them on field trips to the aquarium and the zoo. Like I could never, yeah. I mean, it's drilled into you. Don't ever let a student in your car. Do not drive a student. Even if they have no ride home, do not drive them home from school. And I think, you know, don't ever touch a student um, you know, even if a kid is in like crisis, you have to like, you know, kind of just like be there next to them. If they hug you, that's okay, but you're not allowed to reach out and hug them. And I think that that's, you know, we live in a culture of fear because God yeah. forbid that that kid say like, oh, well, this teacher, you know, put their arm on my shoulder and, you know, then you get a lawsuit. And I think that's even more, I think that teachers, um, of the LGBTQ plus community are probably even more scared of that just due to, um, the, just the nature of the news and, yeah. um, misconceptions about them. Um, you know, so it's a little, it's uncomfortable and it's, uh, like I said, it's that, that fear. And I think that people fear what they don't know or don't understand. Um, yeah, but then bringing it back, if, there's more equity in, you know, who is allowed to share personal stories or not, then the fear kind of dissipates because you have a better understanding. Like, hey, my family is just as normal as your family. You know, we do the same stuff. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. One case that I had or really jump out at me that, that I found surprising about where parents could look at it and try and determine uh, to be able to choose how long they get to 
shape and create the reality that their kids are in rather than just instructing their kid about the reality was mm-hmm. when they, uh, uh, when an associate of mine and had discussed her concern about whether the, uh, the school would introduce her, I think it was a, her first grade or second grade daughter at the time, um, to a non-heterosexual uh, family units and because they didn't want their child to even know about the existence of that sort of family yet. Hmm. When the child had an aunt that was married to a woman, I was like, wait, what? Like, you don't want the school to be able to reveal that these sort of families exist when Mm -hmm. that is the family that your sister has. So how, how much are you just straight lying to your kid about the way people are to establish these um, rules and understandings of people, which not only do you know is not true, but you're straight denying the existence of your close intimate family even. It wasn't Mm -hmm. just some abstract, oh, this happens. But it was not wanting the school to like multiple years in to reveal the existence of your aunt. It, it was confusing and really strange that that would even be taking place. I think that sometimes uh, people, adults especially, get can get lost in a fantasy of their own creation, uh, so to speak. Um, I at one point had a co-worker who knew I was a lesbian and um, knew I was in a committed relationship and the whole nine yards. And one day called me up very upset because um, her daughter, she found out that her daughter's roommate wasn't just her roommate, that they were, you know, a couple. And she was livid and angry and like took down all the pictures of her daughter in her house and was like disowning her. And I'm just like, oh my gosh hello, who are you talking to here? You know what I mean? Like, how do you think that makes me feel as a person, you know, who I am? Um, And uh, it was very upsetting. And it was very revealing to me that sometimes people, you know, like, oh, well, I can relate to that person because, you know, they're LGBTQ. But it's like they almost like they see it, but they don't see it. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't understand how like, horrific her behavior was not just to her daughter but also to me whom I think she was thinking like oh I'm gonna call and vent to my friend like yeah I'm gonna call you out and tell you that you're totally in the wrong and acting childishly you know and horribly that's insane Um, sorry like those are the type of people who are like oh yeah I'm okay if you're part of the LGBTQ plus community but you know if it was anybody in my family or my child then that wouldn't be acceptable and that's not acceptance at all that is not supporting 
the LGBTQ no. plus community at all. That's just, you know, a different type of ignorance. And, you know, it's like on the outer surface, it's like, oh, I have no problem with you. And then it's revealed that, you know, there's this just hatred and ignorance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, when you have exchanges like that, it ends up showing that they're not willing to come out and say it cleanly, but it's very easy to hear that I have a problem with this, mm-hmm. but and I have a problem. With you. I've decided that you have earned my respect as a person, despite and. And yeah, as you said, that's very revealing. Um, mm-hmm. People uh, really lose track of when they're speaking, that their words aren't just what they're saying. It, it's that whole message. And um, one place that like extreme visibility to it, I have encounter a bunch through social media conversations is when people want to take shots at and complain about politicians that they don't agree with. Mm-hmm. They don't list and target like what they claim to have a problem with. It's like fat shaming Donald mm-hmm. Trump or Chris Christie. Mm-hmm. And it's, those people never are never going to hear your message. You're, you're not hurting them, but you have all these other people in your network that are overweight or are dealing with this and they see your message. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They hear it. They are the ones being hurt when you broadcast that, you can't respect somebody because they're LGBT or her someone can't be making a good reasoning because they're fat or, or just the whole list. Yeah. But you have these people in your orbit that they hear you. <laughs> they hear you say that they are less than human <laughs> or they don't meet even your basic definition of humanity because of this they they've managed to earn that when it's not something that's earned it it's people (laughs) accept everybody as people and then build friendships on top of that you you can't have let a friendship get past and oh that makes it now okay i can look past that it, it takes you to that, that unspoken, you're one of the good ones. And yeah, that, that's not inclusion at all. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like, like what you said, like, oh, I can get past that, you know, true friends or, you know, true people who accept others, you know, they, it's not something that you get past. It's something that you accept. It's something that you realize is just a human thing. And something that, you know, nobody should be hateful toward others for. Mm-hmm. Now, as a community member, 
looking in. How would you describe what you see as the current climate for LGBTQ plus students and staff? There are steps necessary for uh, acceptance and inclusion that we need to advance. Um, As a community member, as a parent of Northfield and Dunlogan, I've had um, uh, one of the organizers of Carrie had reached out to ask if I could point them to um, uh, teachers or advisors within the school that they should reach out to, to try and address the uh, inclusiveness of uh, not even the curriculum at the school, but just the contents of the media center, uh, the library. How, how do we go about getting uh, more age-appropriate uh, books and materials at all ages that let the, uh, the students be able to recognize themselves and let all the students be able to read and uh, experience and relate to um, their classmates. Uh, because right now, oh, our libraries, our media centers alone, our curriculums and the, uh, uh, the people from history that we find um, worthy of teaching their example and their history. Um, the representation just is not there. So that's one place that we could really work on improving that climate. Now, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'm not saying you're right or wrong, but um, as a media specialist, I know that media specialists in general do try very hard to represent all of our communities um, and people that are not part of our community. Uh, we represent them too. Um, so it might just be it also, I'm not trying to defend anybody, but it might also be, you know, I know my kid, you know, or some kids, they'll go and they will check out the same Captain Underpants book every week, even though if you try <laughs> to encourage them to try something different, <laughs> um, you know, so it could be that maybe the kid was only bringing home certain books or whatever. But uh, I'd like to think that I would say 95% or more of our, um, you know, media specialists are purchasing diverse options for checkout. Now, whether or not those diverse options are highlighted um, is a different story because I know that it can be overwhelming to try to look at uh, collections. But I do encourage you to check out the uh, public access catalog. Anybody can check that out um, online through the school's websites and stuff just to kind of explore because a lot of people don't realize this, but parents and students um, can make suggestions for purchase of media center materials. Um, I know that that's actually the first place that we go to. So like if Uma were to suggest a book or like any other kid in our school would suggest a book, we always take student suggestions first, um, when we're making purchases for the media center. Um, so, you know, and sometimes those can be um, rather diverse in nature as well, depending on what students' interests are. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there um, to definitely talk to your media specialist um, 
for for that because they are definitely very uh, open to listen and um, ideas. We always want ideas from uh, students, especially um, for new things, new materials to purchase um, that would be of interest to them because there's no point in buying things that are just going to sit um, as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, the public access catalog is definitely something I'll uh, take a look at. And yeah, thanks for uh, the perspective there from the perspective yeah. of a media specialist. No problem. And I also put it out there too, that we as media specialists are required that the items that we purchase have to be reviewed positively by like book list or school library journal. Um, it can't be like some random person on Amazon saying, Oh, this was a great book. Everybody should own it. You know what I mean? Like it has to actually be reviewed. And if it isn't reviewed and it's something that you think will add value to the collection, um, there is a uh, materials uh, form that you can complete Um and then we would just need three certified staff members, so media specialists, teachers, what have you, to um, read the material and sign off on it. Because um, I'll be honest, when I was in elementary, like there were so many wonderful books that just didn't get reviewed. And I was taking home like stacks of books like every weekend, like reading and reviewing them all and asking colleagues to do the same because otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to be in the collection. Like you have to have three people have hands-on like review of the material. So, so that's another thing. So even if it's not, even if it's not, doesn't have a review, that doesn't mean that we can't get it. It just takes a little extra time and effort. So, so when you add materials that way, um, Mm -hmm. Does that approval end up, does that function for the school building and like the specific media center? Or does that go into a, uh, a catalog and such at the district level that they're available for any of the media centers to? That is a great question. So anytime, um, so let's say I'm looking to buy a copy of The Hate You Give um, by Angie Thomas. If let's say nobody ever heard of that title before and let's say it was brand new, it hadn't been reviewed. I see that there's not any reviews. However, it looks like Marriott's Ridge owns a copy of it. My assumption would be that Marriott's Ridge would have completed a materials request form um, that would have been submitted when they requested the book be added to the system. Mm-hmm. So that it goes through um, to media tech services and they take a look at it. And if that, and if they're like, okay, it's gotten three, three reviews by staff members. Yes, we will go ahead and add it to our collection. And so therefore they would be like the first ones to, to have it. Then that gives everybody else the green light so that when I place an order, all I have to do instead of actually citing the review and when that review was published and where, Um, I would just put it's in the public access catalog. So then my supervisor knows, okay, it's an approved book. I can purchase it. So anytime somebody anywhere purchases a book, gets it reviewed, it goes through the process, it gets added to the collection in their school, any school can purchase it. And like for high school, 
if I can purchase any materials that are appropriate for elementary, middle, or high school. Um, so we can add any of those items to our collection just because we have, you know, um, early childhood education programs at our school that might need those materials uh, to do lessons for the little bears that come in. Um, or even some of our uh, English language learners, um, you know, you know, any, anybody can use them or supplemental texts for the classroom, or even if somebody wants to do a read aloud, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it's a process, but, um, it works. And, um, I think I would say that all media specialists, you know, know how the process works. Um, and yeah, so you can definitely put in requests of, Hey, I noticed that, uh, you know, Elkridge Elementary owns King and King. Um, you know, can we get that for our media center too? And, you know, I'd be shocked if the media center, if the media staff said no, you know what I mean? Um, we're, we're a pretty, uh, liberal, um, bunch when it comes to making sure there's, um, access to materials that, um, kids, you know, want and should be learning about and, um, you know, what have you. Now there is definitely a process too, where we get a reconsideration of materials, uh, where parents come in and they're like, Oh, you know, this book has two girls kissing in it and I want it removed from the media center. Um, there is a process, uh, you know, for, um, books that are challenged we call that challenge so that actually goes to a committee of um uh media specialist teachers community members and students um who will then review the book determine you know why it was challenged and if the challenge is valid or not valid and um they'll let you know the person the challenger know like hey you know we we uh took that into consideration. We looked at X, Y, Z, and we're just letting you know that we're removing it from the collection or, you know, that we found that the book was in fact appropriate and we stand by our decision and it is back in the collection for students to check out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, uh, are the records to that something maintained at the district level and, uh, yes. Made visible to you can, you can find out every book that was ever challenged. I, my supervisor has access to it um, that can can share it out. I, th- I probably have access to it. I just can't remember off the top of my head where it's located. Um, <laughs> but I do remember seeing it, and it definitely shows, like, what book was challenged. Um, sometimes, like, a book will get challenged uh, in middle school, and they'll pull it, and they'll look at it, and they'll be like, okay, well, we've chosen to... Uh, keep it at the middle school level. We felt it is appropriate for middle school, but we are saying that it should not be on elementary school shelves. Um, you know, so whether it's uh, content or quality, um, you know, what, you know, there's obviously various issues or irrelevancy um, for that age range, but, you know, uh, definitely a process involved process. Um, but I just went off on the tangent there. So that was like really long, <laughs> gave you lots of information. So, um, you know, definitely, uh, for media, just, just, uh, you know, you can call and make a suggestion. We're a pretty easygoing bunch of media specialists, I will say. 
Yeah, sounds like it. Now, there were some other questions, some student questions that we kind of wanted to share uh, or to ask or bring up. Um, Uma, did you want to go over those? Sure. Um, do you support students using the bathroom and locker rooms that they most identify with? Yes. Yeah, unequivocally. Um, do you support changing the curriculum to an inclusive curriculum? And how would you see it implemented, if so? Yes. Yeah, I, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the Media Center discussion, uh, representation inclusivity in the curriculum is uh, incredibly important, uh, not just so that um, had students with backgrounds related to what uh, should be added or could be added um, mm -hmm. and benefit and be able to see themselves represented, help identify where they can go and what sort of hurdles uh, they might encounter, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, also for everybody else around them to be able to yeah. better relate to their neighbors, their classmates, their friends, their future coworkers. Um, and and well, when you end up talking, uh, especially with uh, like bi and trans folks, um, their future lovers, um, to be in a relationship and end up uh, finding out that uh, your partner is uh, bi or trans or working through uh, understanding that better themselves, uh, it'll give you the additional perspective to be able to uh, understand what they're going through and uh, be there for them and uh, just work through that. That It's something that comes up in relationships in life. So yeah. it's not something that... Um, should be excluded from uh, curriculums and especially uh, like health classes and such when we actually would end up discussing uh, things related to sexuality to leave this like just big black hole of <laughs> had, oh, that's potential <laughs> future confusion and conflict that you'll run into just because we didn't have it as a curriculum. It just wasn't part of what you were exposed to, but it is life. So oh, people yeah. working through these issues themselves would want to be exposed to it. And the people around them should already uh, have some of the exposure and the understanding. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like, you know, curriculum can have such a huge impact on you know, how students see the world and and can have the potential to really help them with a lot of um, life, just a lot of situations in their lives. Um, and just to add on to that question, um, so Montgomery County Public Schools um, is one of the first counties to have a standardized LGBTQ plus studies class for high schoolers. How can HCPSS catch up and what are your plans? When it comes to adding a dedicated class, uh, if we were to 
decide to do that. Currently, we have uh, 12 high schools. So well, do we look at that and identify one of our current teachers would be a good one to run that class and then run a pilot in their school? Or do we decide that, oh, that could be a good thing to have and let's keep that in mind as we're hiring teachers so that maybe a pilot class could become available once we bring on a, a appropriate teacher. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing that I see as a potential benefit uh, going forward long-term for Howard County Schools um, coming out of this um, COVID pandemic and all these uh, virtual learnings and such is we've got the chance to use this experience and the technology investment that we're doing and the adjusted uh, instruction models to be able to continue to deploy that um, going forward uh, to maybe be able to set up a classroom that uses um, sort of pseudo soundproof cubes, you know, uh, uh, kind of like the computer areas that uh, um, libraries had put in back when the internet was new and people were boxed up, they could use the headset with it, but put something like that in one of the rooms of the school so that when we decide to bring on uh, like a, a class like the one you mentioned that we don't already offer, we could just have one teacher come in with that and run it through this same virtual uh, delivery method that we're working through and making function during the pandemic, mm -hmm. but continue to offer that afterwards to where we could open that class yeah. up to all 12 or likely if it's not within the next year or two, open it up to all 13 high schools at the same time and only need that one teacher that's ready to do it. But we make it available to the entire district at once by leveraging this virtual um, delivery model and be able to, to open up new pieces of curriculum like that to the entire school system without having these limitations of, oh, I'd really like to try that, but I'm at Mount Hebron and it was only Longreach that is getting that class. Um, we have yeah, a chance definitely. to modernize our delivery to open things like that up to the whole student uh, body. I think that's cool. I mean, we do that already with uh, several digital uh, through the digital education office. Um, you know, we have several uh, classes that operate that way. Um, but it does only work if the teacher, you know, has a reasonable number of students, you know, in the class. So even though it's like, you know, scattered around and there's 12 different schools, it is difficult to kind of manage if all 12 are online at the same time, like, oh, well, this one's having technical issues and this one doesn't, there doesn't seem to be a teacher present in the room. You know what I mean? Because they still, you still have to have a physical adult around, even though it's virtual, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so there's still staffing that will be required. Um, but yeah, that's, that's cool. Okay. So we know that LGBTQ plus student staff um, are high on your priority list. Do you have a timeline for like making promote uh, proposals or implementing changes uh, should you become elected? 
I don't have a fixed timeline on that. <laughs> um, and if this um, if this election goes uh, cleanly and ideally, um, there are four solid uh, inclusion and equity focused candidates um, all running. Um, and unlike myself, they would not all be um, freshmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jen Mallow in District 4 um, is uh, a, a friendly candidate and she's experienced with the board already. I've bound to discuss uh, uh, policy and process with her. Um, so I, I see that if the four of us all get to go on as a block, that we will um, will be able to uh, hit the ground running there, and I don't know with uh, the election results coming in in November and our first meeting not being till late December. Um, it gives us a solid um, three to five weeks to really work through and be able to put together uh, plans or uh, uh, suggestions to bring up in mm-hmm. that first meeting, if not uh, waiting till the second. And uh, ideally, with us not coming on until December, um, the current board should basically have had time to sort of right the ship and provide a direction for handling uh, the immediate um, <laughs> had house on fire concerns relating to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So well, definitely within the current school year, we should be in a place that we can um, be providing um, updates and direction suggestions and all that uh, things that can be able to be in place and vetted by the following school year. Cool. Now your um, your opponent has already served on the board of, board of education is currently serving on the board of education. Um, why do you consider yourself a better choice for District 1? Well, District 1 relies on a lot of educators. Um, we've got uh, numerous schools, uh, had three separate high schools that all uh, serve District 1, the various middle schools, elementary, and they all are entirely dependent on our educator staff. And we need them motivated. We need them teaching. We need them healthy um, and alive. (laughs) And my opponent has put educators at uh, the back of the decision tree uh, for a while now. And most recently that came to head with 
her push to um, attempt to force them back into the schools uh, as soon as possible um, over the health concerns, the safety concerns, and the through both the uh, HCEA and the HCPSS uh, surveys, their documented wishes. Um, so I'd, I don't see a way that we can run a successful school district or that we can successfully serve for the students and parents of District 1 without also serving for our educators. Um, I, I don't foresee a way that we can accomplish successful education without uh, involving and supporting our educators. Well, thanks for that. We appreciate the support <laughs> for sure. You're very important. Um, now, hmm, let's see. The election is in November. Um, yeah. What else do you want uh, or what would you like voters to know about you? I would like voters to know that I'm dedicated and committed to the long-term success and stability of our schools, of our buildings, of our uh, educator staff. Um, and my youngest is uh, been just finalized for um, kindergarten and since uh, the school year ended and I'm in it for the long haul. Uh, he's the class of uh, what, 2033. Mm -hmm. So well, I, I am invested here or as a community member, as a parent and I, I'm in it to make sure that the school board or the school system uh, stays effective, relevant, and solvent um, for decades to come. Uh, our technology shortfalls and uh, underinvestment that have happened in the past uh, became abundantly clear why they were unacceptable this past spring. And uh, I'm a tech professional. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a technical leader at Cisco. Um, and I'm just intimately familiar with the way um, technology can and does help um, facilitate uh, education, communication, uh, keeping people um, connected, available, and keeping people safe while they're doing it. Um, these are all problems that uh, in both the short term and the long term will continue to come up and will continue to become more important for not just the school system, but the families it serves, the students we're educating, and the educators that uh, we require and that uh, we need to support. So 
my tech experience and uh, I'd drive will uh, I'd help carry us uh, forward, make sure that we don't end up in a situation like we found ourselves in at the beginning of April. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Matthew, and uh, good luck to you in November. Yeah, it was great to meet you. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, I appreciate being on with you and I've enjoyed our time. The music featured at the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license.